0: So like Wendy said, uh, this is the kickoff for our local spirituality series where we're going to be bringing folks in from all over the town to share their spiritual practices that have helped them deepen their spiritual lives. And so I'm kicking it off tonight, and tonight we're going to be talking about action and contemplation. So what I'd like for us to start with is actually a passage from the New Testament. It's Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. It's the story of Mary and Martha. or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So the point of this story seems to be pretty straightforward. It seems to be telling us that it is better to sit at the feet of Jesus than to be worried and consumed by our daily tasks. And many theologians would agree with you. These theologians have then gone on to say that contemplation is in fact more important than action that if you had the option to choose between the two, you would best be served by choosing contemplation. But this line of thinking has also set up a situation where action and contemplation are seen as two opposite ends of a spectrum battling for our attention. So fast forward to the late 13th century, early 14th century, and in walks a person who wants to challenge this understanding. This person's name is Meister Eckhart, a a Christian mystic who is known especially for his provocative sermons and commentaries. And in his sermon, Sermon 86, what a title, (laughs) he challenges people's understandings of action and contemplation. And he does so using the very same passage many theologians have used to put action and contemplation against one another. So let's now look at Meister Eckhart's interpretation of this exact same passage. This was the case with Martha. When she says, Lord, tell her to help me, it was as though she were saying, my sister thinks she can do what she pleases while she sits by you, filled with consolation. Let her find out whether this is true and tell her to get up and leave you. Therefore, Martha said, Lord, tell her to get up because she feared that she would remain stuck in this pleasant feeling and would progress no further. Why did he name Martha twice? He wanted to indicate that Martha possessed completely everything of temporal and eternal value that a creature should have. When he said Martha the first time, he indicated her perfection in temporal works. With his second calling out, Martha, he affirmed that she lacked nothing of all that is necessary for eternal happiness. Hence, he said, you are careful, by which he meant You stand in the midst of things, but they do not reside in you. And those are careful who go about unimpeded in all their daily pursuits. Those people are unimpeded who perform all their works properly according to the image of eternal light. And such people stand in the midst of things, but not in things. They stand very near and yet do not have less of it than if they stood up above at the rim of eternity. Martha stood in lordly, well-founded virtue, with a free spirit unimpeded by anything. Hence, she wished for her sister to be put in this same state, because she saw she was not standing firmly. It was a splendid ground out of which she wished that Mary might be established in all that is necessary for eternal happiness. Martha was afraid her sister would remain clinging to consolation and sweetness, and she wished her to become as she herself was. This is why Christ said, she has chosen the best part, as if to say, cheer up, Martha. This will leave her. The most sublime thing that can happen to a creature shall happen to her. She shall become as happy as you. What? <laughs> 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 what did Mike Master Eckhart just say? Um, so it's clear that his interpretation of this whole thing got increasingly far-fetched as he went on down the line. But I I think Meister Eckhart has hit on a nugget of truth. Uh, He's holding up Martha as one who has successfully integrated both action and reflection, action and contemplation. She's able to go about doing her daily tasks in a deep state of contemplation. She's able to be in the midst of things while not being in things. She's able to navigate the chaos around her while maintaining a deep and still center. And really, I mean, Martha just wanted Mary to experience the same thing that she was, so that's obviously why she told Jesus to tell Mary to get up off her butt and help her with the chores, right? So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's where he loses me a little bit. But, but, I, think, but I think what I love about it is he, he talks about Mary in a way that just says, hey, look, Mary needs silence in order to really uh, uh, get in touch and develop that inner life. She, she still has further work to do in order to be unimpeded by anything, to be able to remain in a contemplative space while going about doing active things, right? I also really love this sermon by Meister Eckhart because in it he offers us a corrective. He sees the need for humanity to integrate both action and contemplation, to stop viewing action and contemplation as two ends of a spectrum, but as two halves of an integrated whole. Action and contemplation aren't at war with one another, they're actually one and the same. In the book, Inviting the Mystic, Supporting a Prophet, says that real prayer leads to involvement. Real involvement leads to prayer. Deeper spirituality impels to action. Action impels to deeper spirituality. And the circle continues and deepens. The mystic becomes prophet. The prophet becomes mystic. Action and contemplation are two halves of an integrated whole. The mystic and the prophet are one and the same. And by integrating action and contemplation, we find that our spirituality deepens significantly. The other thing I love about this reframing is it actually opens up the possibility for there to be multiple paths into the integrated life. You could be someone who's initially drawn into the work of justice, but then by waking up to the contemplative, you'll find that your activism suddenly becomes more grounded and sustainable. Likewise, if you're someone who's drawn to contemplation and would maybe even consider yourself a mystic, when you wake up to the prophet within you, you will find yourself engaging in very radical action. The prophet becomes mystic, the mystic becomes prophet. And the important thing for us to hear is that our work is to see both the prophet and the mystic action and contemplation as an integrated whole, and that anything less is actually very dangerous. James Noel, a black pastor and theologian, he offers a word of caution that I think speaks to why separating action and contemplation is so dangerous. Any spirituality which does not engage in justice is unbiblical and only reinforces the political and psychic structures of oppression. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is that we can't remain stuck at Jesus' feet we have to progress further. We are called to progress further. We are called to venture out into the world and to engage in the work of justice while carrying with us a contemplative center. Now, does this mean that it's bad if we have times where we are silent and alone and sitting at Jesus' feet? No, not at all. Am I saying that it's wrong for folks to go out and, and be an activist? and maybe in that moment, you're not really connected to your center? No, absolutely not. But what I am saying is that if you are an activist and you don't develop your inner life, you are going to burn out and you are going to become so bitter. And if you are a contemplative who never engages with justice, just know that what you are doing by not engaging with justice, you are saying it is okay for systems of oppression to continue. So how does this work? How can we practice both action and contemplation? I don't know. <laughs> I, so, I, I really have no idea. Uh, the, only way, the only way I know to talk about it is just by sharing stories of people who have done it. <laughs> so, so, what we're going to do is we're going to break this next part into two sections. And first, we're going to start by looking at folks who fostered a deep inner life that then led to radical action. So Barbara Holmes, who wrote an unbelievable book called Joy Unspeakable, has this to say about the inner life of black folks engaged in the civil rights movement. You cannot face German shepherds and fire hoses with your own resources. There must be God and stillness at the very center of your being. Otherwise, you will spiral into the violence that threatens you. What saves you is the blessed merger of intuitive knowing with rationality, pain, and resolve. An example that she gives of this very thing is how black students would sing the song Jesus Loves Me while being escorted by the National Guard into schools as they were being integrated. Wow. Her example of the use of song highlights actually one of many contemplative tools, centering practices that can help us remain centered while engaged in radical action. Other practices could include things like uh, liturgy, prayer, rituals, stories that instill hope. All of these things work and there are many, many more practices. There is a Catholic priest named Archbishop Oscar Romero who did a lot of work organizing the poor in El Salvador. And in the 80s, what was happening is many of the poor folks were really unable to, to get their needs met. Like there was such injustice happening there that many of the priests and other organizers were actually bringing together the poor, uh, gathering the poor together so they could then demand that the system change and meet their needs. They were standing up against oppression. And El Salvador responded by releasing the army to put out this movement with violence. And in this particular scene that I'm gonna paint, there is a group of soldiers who took over a Catholic church. Archbishop Romero caught wind of this, showed up, and was deeply offended that these people who were doing violence would desecrate the church in this way by by taking it over. He could not believe it. And he was so offended uh, that he actually stormed in there to at least get the elements, the bread and the wine, to get that out of there, because that is sacred. So after he did this, There's a bunch of poor folks gathered around being like, hey, what are we going to do? And Archbishop Romero decides to do the thing that he's practiced so many times, and he's like, let's just have a mass, and let's have communion. Mm -hmm. And then what they did was they processed into that church, and all the soldiers left. That's the power of liturgy when it's moved into the public sphere. Another example, the Civil Rights Movement, they're known... Uh, One of the things they're known for is song. The Civil Rights Movement introduced uh, the power of song to movement work. And what was so powerful about it is they actually took a bunch of black spirituals out into the streets. We sang one of them tonight. I'm gonna do what the spirits say do. But it didn't stop there, did it? I'm gonna pray when the spirits say pray. You know, I'm actually gonna march when the spirits say march. I'm gonna go to jail if the spirit says jail. So you see how, how the song actually does a couple things. One, it connects people who identify as Christian to their own faith tradition. It goes deep in there. But then as it doesn't stop there, it connects their faith to the justice work that is at hand. And that is a powerful move to make. One last story of the power of song. So I lived at Sheriff Brook Catholic Worker House um, for five years and Uh, we were, were, you know, an intentional Christian community living in the historic Northeast. We would offer showers to folks who were sleeping on the streets, occasionally asked them to move in with us. Uh, We grew food, uh, we had chickens, we had bees, we shared income, cars, and we did a whole mess of peacemaking work. One of the things that we did in regards to peacemaking is we would, on Wednesdays, go out into the streets Uh, So we would meet our friends on their turf instead of making them come to ours. And we would just go out and see how they're doing. And then if there was an instance of violence or the potential of violence, we would intervene if it made sense. Uh, We'd want to resolve and actually transform that conflict into something something beautiful. On one particular Wednesday, we went to a place on Independence Avenue called Red Mile. And on, on this particular Wednesday, there was a gentleman who I did not know who came up and talked to me who was very agitated. And as we kept talking, he got increasingly agitated to the point where he pulled a knife out on me. That scared me. and um, But thankfully in that moment, he said, watch this, and he threw the knife behind him across the street. And so I immediately thanked him for being nonviolent. I don't know how or why that happened, but I'm <laughs> thankful for it. Glad I didn't get stabbed, I'm gonna be real honest. But immediately after that moment, like, it freaked me out. I did not want to go out on another peacemaking walk, and there's no way in the world I wanted to be on the Red Mile. It really messed me up. At the same time, I I just discovered this thing called Tazay Services, where you would gather together for silence and contemplation, and you would sing these short songs that are maybe four lines, and you say them over and over and over again, so they in themselves become kind of a prayer. So even though I was freaked out and I dreaded every Wednesday when it came, I still said yes and I still went on these peacemaking walks. And as we, we would go out on the walks, I found myself humming something in my head and I wasn't really paying attention to it. And then one day I started to listen in and I'm like, wait, what? what am I singing? And I realized that I was singing a Today song to myself and the lyrics were this, In the Lord I'll be ever thankful, in the Lord I will rejoice. Look to God, do not be afraid. Lift up your voices, the Lord is near. Lift up your voices, the Lord is near. I had no idea why I was singing that, but I kept doing it. And I kept doing it. Every week I find myself humming that same song, and after about a month and a half, all of a sudden I noticed that the, I no longer dreaded going out for our Wednesday walks. And then all of a sudden I noticed that I had no fear going to the Red Mile. This is the power of contemplative practices when put into action. And we need these resources, both religious and non-religious folks alike, we need them. We need to tap into whatever kind of practices we have that center us, that still us. We need these acts of contemplation in order to face the injustices that oppress so many. So what I want us to do now is to get into groups of two or three, no more than three, preferably two. And what I want you to do is just Think of different contemplative practices that have helped to center you, that have helped you to persevere, especially in the midst of chaos and tension. Maybe you want to think about practices that center you, that create space for you, uh, that maybe calm you when fear starts to grip you. So why don't we take maybe about five minutes, get into groups of two or three, discuss it, and then I want to hear everything you got to say. Cool? Do it. Okay, so talk to me. What what did you discuss in your groups? Yeah. Um, we we'll talked about breathing, um, mindfulness, muscle relaxation, doing guided meditation, yoga, stretching, walking meditation, being present, chanting. Yes. All right, that's you, you got a you got a whole list. That's so great. That's good. All right, we're done. That's the list. That's definitive. So we're gonna add. Them. We, yeah. we had bat list and then we had drumming. Drumming. Yeah, so drumming. So tell me, tell me what, what, what does that do for you? It's centering. Mm-hmm. And, um, it raises your consciousness. There's something to that. Yeah, but it, what, if there's something in there that really needs out, you, know, you can pass like, yeah. mm. that. Like the, there's like a release yeah, to it, can, too. Yeah. yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, as I see over here, I drink tea. <laughs> that's great. Seriously. That's good. That's good. Just take it nice and easy. You don't chug it, do you? No. Okay, good. I burn my soft palate every time. Yeah, that's good. That's great. That's great. Drinking tea. Yeah, what else? So I said, K-Love Christian radio station that really helps center me, and then JB said poetry, and it's so crazy because she's actually done some poems on Wednesday night like a Sabbath, and I have seen her, so it's just crazy how it all like comes full circle. Oh, that's great! That's great, yeah. I mean, I um. Yeah, we've talked about a little bit how sometimes it's like too painful to like be still, and like when that's the case, like journaling or like even escaping into like a novel or. Treating your body well and eating good food and like mm-hmm. some just like practical ways when sometimes maybe being still is, is a little too hard. Yeah, that's it's great. almost like yeah. like carrying externally for I don't know. Yeah, there's just something beautiful about like oh like I I don't feel strong enough to like go in so I'm gonna like do really good things for what's on the outside mm-hmm. for now. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's good. That's good. So yeah, whenever it's whenever it's too tough to go in, you've got some external things that you can do that also bring you to like a, a, a I don't know, just like a more centered state. That's that's beautiful. Maybe one more? Yeah. So, so it kind of with a couple of things. One on um, like Gregorian chants or binaural beats, something to mm-hmm. kind of tune into. And then also I do a centering exercise and part of it's just getting in touch with your body, doing the deep breathing. But also, when you lean back, leaning into all the strengths and experiences that have brought you to this place and will be with you as you move forward. So, just leaning into that resourcefulness that goes beyond us. Yeah. yeah. And are you also talking about like physically leaning back yes. as you think about it? That's yes. beautiful. Yeah. So it's like you got that backbone. It's like, yeah. we, 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 we got this. Yeah. Right? That's beautiful. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing those practices, and I know that there's loads more that could be shared, but I'm looking at the clock, so we go. (laughs) There's a British cultural anthropologist named Victor Turner, uh, who says that through acts of contemplation, people are able to see clearly and can critique the prisms of oppression. Not only that, but they can reconfigure the status quo with hope, and then can actually implement hope with social action. So now we're gonna look at how we can implement hope with social action. We're going to see how we can actually co-create the beloved community and see how that can actually draw us deep into the contemplative life. We're gonna look at now how the prophet invites the mystic. And as our shift focuses to that, to how a life of radical action can draw us to the contemplative, I wanna highlight yet another quote from Barbara Holmes, Joy Unspeakable, a great book. Um, She says, always the quest for justice draws one deeply into the heart of God. Always the quest for justice draws one deeply into the heart of God. When we commit ourselves to the work of justice, we connect ourselves to the very heartbeat of God, a God who cares deeply about the liberation of all creation from oppression. And this connection can be an unbelievably powerful animating force that can actually give folks the courage to stand up and face injustices head on over and over and over. This deep connection, though, is something that needs to be tended to. Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk living in Kentucky, he saw all the social change that was happening in the 50s and 60s, so he decided to correspond with and invite a whole mess of activists to his monastery in Kentucky. And he did this so that they collectively could foster this inner connection so that none of the activists would burn out, which Martin Luther King called the ultimate act of surrender. Thomas Burton saw the heart of God in these activists. And Thomas wanted to make sure that they were developing their own contemplation practices. Thomas Merton, from the monastery, drew prophets to the mystic, and those activists drew Thomas Merton, the mystic, to the prophet. I have one last example of someone who I think ended up finding a deep rest while in the midst of radical action, and her name is Fannie Lou Hamer. She was a major force in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, There's a quote that many, many know from her. It's, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And despite her being sick and tired of federal, state, uh, local, and cultural forces that deemed her to be a non-person, she found focus, restoration, and rest in the Civil Rights Movement. This actually led some of her friends to believe that the Civil Rights Movement is the reason she lived to be 59 years old, despite some serious health issues that she was dealing with throughout her life. The movement that affirmed her humanity and the humanity of all black people served as a place of rest and contemplation for her. Mm. This is what Barbara Holmes has to say about Fannie Lou Hamer. According to her friend Virginia Gray Adams, her back hurt and her spirit waged war without proper food or medicine. So when the movement came, there was rest. Mm. Not the rest that pervades the lives of most contemplatives, but rest nonetheless. Mm. Rest as you tell Congress to let your people go. Rest as you testify and lead a delegation off the floor of the Democratic Convention. Rest comes as rest comes, sometimes in the great beds of the wealthy and sometimes just a step away from hard labor. When it comes, it is a balm to the spirit and solace to the soul. This is a rest that wafts from a wellspring of intentional justice seeking as spiritual practice. The practices allow one to live in and out of the body, and to inhabit hope as an ethereal but more permanent enfleshment. Fannie Lou Hamer was cloistered in an activist movement, finding her focus, restoration, and life in God in the midst of the beloved community already here and yet coming. Fannie was an example of Martha. Meister Eckhart's Martha. (laughs) Fannie Lou Hamer was one who found rest in the midst of chaos and death threats and health issues. And I think we are called to do likewise. To close tonight, what I'd like for us to do is engage in a meditative exercise. So what I am going to invite you all to do is to get yourselves in a comfortable posture, plant your feet firmly on the ground. Make sure that your posture is comfortable yet attentive. And I invite you just to close your eyes and begin to take some deep breaths. As you continue to breathe deeply, If you find that there are many thoughts, many worries that are creeping up in your brain, I invite you just to acknowledge them and let them fall like a snow globe as it settles. Think of one issue that matters to you, one injustice that you are passionate about. Once that injustice comes to mind, take time to notice why it is that you care about that injustice. How does this injustice affect the world? How does this injustice affect your community? How does it affect your friends? Your family? How does this injustice affect you? Now, I'd like for you to to imagine yourself becoming active and dismantling the injustice that you care about. Notice what is happening within your body as you hold this injustice. And maybe you want to identify where in the body you feel it. Maybe it's your gut, maybe it's your chest, maybe it's your shoulders, your neck. You to imagine how this feeling may prompt your body to move. As you begin to move, who would you invite to come with you? Who are you inviting into the work? this community could do to create justice and equity. (laughs) Maybe you join a protest, maybe you speak up at your workplace, maybe you write policy, maybe you start a community. Whatever it is though, visualize what that looks like. Where are you who is with you? And how does it feel to be in the middle of an active social movement? Now I want you to visualize what the world would look like without this injustice. What does your community look like in this new reality? Do the houses look different? Is the city structured differently? Does the demeanor of your neighbors change? And how does this new reality make you feel? Take a few more deep breaths and begin to come back into this space, and you can open your eyes. So what I'd love for us to do, I realize we're at about 8.04, but I want to at least allow some time for you all to unpack, and I promise this is it. So what I'd love for you to do now is get back into your groups of two or three, and I'd love for you to discuss just what came up for you. Uh, you, could, you could discuss maybe the injustice that you picked, how it affected you or your community. You could discuss how getting involved made you feel, or maybe you just want to share your vision of a just and equitable society. Whatever it is, that's great. Um, But get into your pairs and threes and discuss, and then we'll close. Thank you very much for engaging in that. so to close, I just I just want to say thank you so much for engaging in all of it tonight, uh, both the meditative exercise and discussing what kind of contemplative acts keep you centered. I know that for me and for the Open Table community, we think it's so important for us as a community to be integrating action and contemplation because we recognize that, as I said earlier, if we are only contemplatives. We are, in essence, saying yes to the oppressions uh, that exist all over the society. And we also recognize that if we are only activists, we are going to burn out so quick. And so it's important for us, I think, to really grasp this. And so thank you for engaging in that tonight. And I'm excited for this community to embrace both as an integrated whole. Amen?